Open the beautiful word. Amen. Let's open the word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we continue in our work through this uh, letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verses 13 through 18. So we're moving on to the development of another uh, theme in this epistle. We finished dealing with the Christian's ordinary calling. We saw that in the previous verses that we are called to mind our own business and lead a quiet and tranquil life. Wow, how's that for a radical call? <laughs> yeah, we're saying the Christian's is an ordinary calling of truly being restored to new humanity and creatureliness as God intends it and loving God and loving neighbor through our vocation and our service to neighbor for the honor and glory of God and the witness of his name. And that takes the form of very ordinary ways in life. Okay, so we saw that the past uh, few uh, weeks and we're moving on now to the Apostle Paul calling attention to the comfort, the final comfort and hope of the believer. And that is the return of Christ and the resurrection. We dealt with this topic during Easter, during Resurrection Week, at some level. And we want to now take a little bit of a different angle and deal with it with more specificity. Uh, it is one of the themes in these two letters, the return of Christ and what happens around this major event, the second coming of Christ that Christ Christians await and long for. So the, the title for our series now could be Christ's return. What happens? Hmm? Christ's return. What happens? My subtitle in the Bible, which are added, it's also fitting. It says, the comfort of Christ's coming. So to finding out what major events happen when Christ returns, we also want to see how these events provide a source of strengthening and comfort to believers. So with that in mind, let us begin reading in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of Christ. We're going to be covering some of the explicit major events and, and significance of the Lord's return. And, and there are other circumstances and events that also happen. And we're going to touch on some of them. And others we will leave for the second letter of the, to the Thessalonians. In which Paul deals with it in more detail. But what is the first obvious thing that happens when Christ returns? Well, that he returns bodily. And I wanted to make that point because it's important. It's important to know what is the hope of the Christian. What is the, the salvation of the Christian? What does it consist of? 
Every religion has some sort of way of looking at an eschatology, at, at an eschaton, meaning at, at the end, at the hope, at the goal, right, of the salvation that they purport, that system purports to, to bring. So what is the salvation that Christianity teaches? What is it about? What does it consist in? And the Bible goes to great lengths to explain that it has to do with Christ risen in the flesh, in body, with the humanity that he took for himself when he first came. And that is that same Christ, Lord and Savior, God, Emmanuel, with us, the Son, the Word, eternal Word of God, return to us in body in order to bring about the resurrection of our bodies. A renewed humanity, a new creation. And that is... Um, the significance of the Christian faith in terms of, of the Christian faith being a very um, historical kind of faith. What do I mean by historical? That the Word of God and the promises of God address the continuity of history. If you notice other philosophies and other religions, somehow... The goal and their finish line does not fully address the continuity of history. In other words, it may be for some that we are united to a universal consciousness, for example. Or we could be elevated and absorbed into God, which is in the whole universe. The universe is God and God is the universe. Or we perhaps may be lifted up unto some unknown worlds or planets to continue a cycle of reincarnations and a cycle of spiritual uh, change and transformation. And then it, it ever goes on like that. There's different, a lot of different uh, philosophies and mindsets that have to do with, with ultimate things. Now, if... And this is interesting because I do believe that the truth addresses the existential cry of the soul of humankind. And if I were to ask you, what would you, what would you like in terms of a good outcome for, for life, you know, for, for the world? And I don't know about you, but what I would like is to live forever, wouldn't you? And to live forever, not as some type of fluid or energy or spirit floating around. I like, I like my body. I like my person. I like flesh. I like matter. You know why we like it? Because God made us thus. And He called it good. We have been penetrated by the old heresy of Gnosticism. And the old heresy of Gnosticism, which is with us in some of its modern and postmodern variations, is the disconnect between matter, body, corporeality, and spirit. And sometimes Christians have taken to the notion that we're looking forward to just going to heaven. And you're just going beyond. And to maybe just reaching the realm of the light. Right? And, and it's some sort of disembodied, ethereal, kind of a beyond kind of world experience. And the Savior took on, took upon himself flesh to recapitulate the history of mankind, lived a perfect life as a human for us, and died and rose for our forgiveness and justification in order to perfect, redeem, rescue, and bring to perfection His plan for humanity, for creatures dwelling together with Him in a new, renewed cosmos of matter, of corporeality, together with spiritual beings which are different from us, all reconciled 
in the presence of God and united in the presence of God in new creation. So the return of Christ addresses that in body, in flesh. And it's interesting that when he rose, he appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And they were able to see him and touch him. We remember the uh, story of what happened with Thomas who doubted when the Lord appeared and he wasn't there. And then Jesus invited him to touch, to see the wounds. And Jesus ate with Peter, you know, and spent a picnic day with them at the beach and worship with them in-house, indoors. And then we hear, let's go, let's go ahead and, and check uh, the book of Acts chapter 1. In the book of Acts chapter 1, the disciples, the followers of Christ are mesmerized, astounded, and possibly also a little scared, um, kind of bewildered by what is happening at the ascension of Christ. This Savior that has been with them for three years, the Savior that has gone through death and come back from it and raised and is the source of all their hopes and now is being, it's being taken away from them. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And notice what the voice says. Beginning in verse 9. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So this is the final hope of the believer. It is a major event that we are waiting for. We are not waiting as, in other words, there are things in this world that we could look forward to and that would be good to us. You know, a good economy is one, right? The lack of war is another. Um, good social developments, you know, and even justice is some things that we welcome. But hear me out. None of those things are the object, the substance, and the focus of our faith. In other words, the focus of our faith is the person, the work of Christ, and every aspiration and expectation of humanity that is found in His redemption which will be fully realized and consummated when Christ returns. So that has some implications. And, and, and one of the biggest implications is that the people of God are those that wait. We are awaiting people. Did you know that? I know we don't like, who likes to wait? I, don't, I lose, I don't like waiting at all. <laughs> Americans don't like waiting. No, we don't like standing in line. We don't like, you know, being set back in delay. We want everything quick and we want it now. Hence, Christianity, modern, postmodern Christianity has turned into some sort of a drive-through Christianity in which I'm looking for some earthly benefits of improvement of my life or my environment or my society or my country. And Christianity and Jesus is a means to that. And while definitely Christ brings individual benefits and there are principles that improve our lives, and definitely a nation that would fear God will be blessed 
in doing so. That is now the ultimate hope and substance and the object of our faith and our aspirations. This world is passing by and its desires, the Bible says. True faith, true Christian faith is looking to the world to come. It's not looking to its best life now. As a matter of fact, we know that our best life cannot possibly be now. If there is a sign that you have true faith, true hope, true longing, is that you know that in this world, that in this current, as the Bible calls it, evil age, you will not have your best life. You can have a good life. You can have a blessed life, even in the midst of suffering and in the midst of the hardships of this life, because God is with us and He is for us. And He is the loving Father. But our hope transcends this, this current evil age. Now, it is a hope of new creation. In other words, while we have a hope that transcends this world and overcomes this world, it is a hope that is in line and in accordance with God's creation and the renewal of God's creation. It is the hope of a new glorified body, resurrected body. It is a hope of a new fellowship and organization of people. It is a hope of a new dwelling and worship environment with God in such a redemption. And that is what we ought to be focused on. That is what we must be honing in on. That is what we must be fixing our eyes upon. And to the degree and measure that we do that, we shall be comforted and strengthened even in a world that may be collapsing or even in a world that may promise peace and safety at the expense of God's plan and purpose and will. So if there is something that the church of today needs to be clear on is what is the substance of our hope? What is the object of our faith? What is the longing and the aspirations that characterize the people of God? And it is first and foremost the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ bodily, visibly, in triumphant glory. Let me show you another passage in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, we hear the following there. Hebrews 9, verses 27 through 28. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 27. <clears throat> Let's pick it up in verse 26 of Hebrews 9. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, there is a contrast being made between the priests, the, the earthly priests, under the Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic Covenant, which would die, and they would have to just keep being replaced and offering, offerings that could not take away sins. However, there were signs and symbols and shadows of the final, ultimate, and sufficient offering that would come. So that is the context of what we're reading now. And now notice what he says. But now, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice, when did the end of the ages begin? When Christ first came. It's very important. When Christ, that is why he said... And why? Why is the first coming of Christ the beginning of the end of the ages? Because the first coming of Christ fulfills all promises of the Old Testament except for one. Everything that God promised to do for salvation and redemption to the world was fulfilled with the first coming of Christ. 
So what is and what did he do? He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For what? For the world. Both for Jews and for Gentiles. In other words, the good news of the gospel of salvation was meant not just for the Jews, but also for Gentiles. And when that happened, when the foundation, the cornerstone, and redemption realized, accomplished by the Son, happened at His first coming, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come. The end of the ages is here. What does that mean? That nothing remains to be fulfilled. As far as God's promise to save, everything that God was going to do to accomplish redemption and to save a people was realized and accomplished with the first coming of Christ. Now, the problem with the, the Old Testament vantage point was that those that lived before Christ, they thought, indeed, that with the coming of the Messiah, the, the end of the age would come. And they were right partially. They were partially right. Indeed, we hear that the end of the ages began with the first coming of Christ. Because indeed, Messiah came and put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself, accomplished redemption. What they could not foresee is that there would be a period after the first coming of Christ, in the beginning of the end of the ages, in which souls and people and the world would be saved. And many would come and enter. And that not only Jews, but Gentiles would be saved by that same gospel. What did they think? What did the Jews think? That Messiah would come, would vindicate Israel, and then they would rule with Messiah at the head in a creation not yet renewed, and thus the Gentile nations would come to the Messiah. Because we have premises for that in the language of the Old Testament. But the language of the Old Testament is using precisely the kingdom of Israel as a type of the ultimate kingdom that would come. That yes, there would be a king over the throne of Israel, but that king would not be David or any particular Jew, but it would be the Son of God Himself. That yes, there would be a prophet even greater than Moses, but it was not a prophet to continue to point ahead to anything that remained to be fulfilled, but the prophetic voice that would say, it is all finished. A prophet, a king, and a priest. That yes, there would be a priesthood and a temple, but that priesthood and the temple in the prophetic language of the Old Testament was pointing ahead to the raising of a new temple and to the enthronement in that new temple and anointment in that new temple of the Messiah as the high priest from heaven. All of those aspirations that the Jews looked forward to have been realized and fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus says, the kingdom, the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. But what they failed to realize is that it would not come yet in physical, visible glory. But that he would come in spiritual glory that would reach and fill the world through the gospel. So that Gentiles would also come into this kingdom. So that together with the Jews, out of two peoples, one people would be formed. The people of God, the bride of Christ, kings and priests for God. And when that number would finish, would be finalized, 
and all of God's people would be complete, then the end would come. The end in culmination. In fulfillment, it came with Christ. The promises were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? The promises to save have been fulfilled and salvation in the sense of gathering the elect and gathering God's people from the four corners of the world to bring them to Mount Zion. That is the church, the bride of Christ. That is in process now and soon to be finished, by the way. And when that happens, then the final end comes in culmination. And what is that culmination? The return of Christ bodily. With the return of Christ bodily, the resurrection of the saints and the resurrection of unbelievers. And with that, final judgment. And after that, new creation. Folks, these are the major events in line to happen. There are other nuances and other details and circumstances. And there are a couple of them very important that we will be addressing in the second letter. But the major events that we are looking forward to with Christ's bodily return is precisely resurrection, judgment, and new creation. Very simple. Just mark, you can mark him down like that. Return of Christ unto resurrection, the glory of God's people, the exaltation of God's people with him, and the judgment of unbelievers and the wicked and God's enemies. And then, new creation. Folks, with that in mind, we continue seeing here in this passage of the Hebrews that he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then on that basis, notice verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Notice that? How many, how many times do people die? Once. They don't die twice. <laughs> Pastor, why are you saying that? Well, some people might know. In some people's eschatology, people rise, they die, and they rise again. <laughs> there's two Armageddons, there's, there's two final battles, there's, there is a, a whole plethora of complications. Now hopefully we'll be unfolding some of those, not the full scheme, but some of those. The return of Christ and eschatology is very simple. It is, we, and possibly if you had hung around in church for a while, or maybe grew up in church, you kind of have those uh, maps and schemes and a whole bunch of things happening. And, and folks, it is very simple. Christ appeared once to put away sin. In other words, to accomplish salvation. After that is done, the only thing that remains is for people to run their natural course and they will die. All of us. Did you know that? Did you know that all of us are going to die? Youth, do you know that youth? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes, you know, we, we don't live in, inside of our, of the fragility of life. Of, of how quickly life goes by. Of how vulnerable we are. Of how passing this, you know, the Bible makes, Pastor, you're being pessimistic. No, I'm being biblical. You're being negative. No, we want to be biblical. And I want to assure you, whatever is biblical will come for your hearts. When we, in light of the Word of God, examine the fragility of life, the vulnerability of humankind, the passing and the fleeting nature of this world, we live in light of eternity. We ponder the years of our lives, which are 70, at best 80 or 90. And then with everything we hear in the Word is sighing and it's effort and, and it, it's really troublesome. And then we are drawn to view eternity and to gain wisdom, to gain a heart of wisdom by looking unto God and unto what is eternal, immortal, and glorious and honoring 
when it comes to God's redemption of humanity. So what happens is then that this is what is appointed under man. God's redemption in Christ, redemption accomplished in Christ, redemption applied by the Spirit of Christ now to the four corners of the world. We die and then the judgment. And then the judgment. Obviously, sometimes there's verses that they conflate things, right? This judgment is looking all the way ahead to final judgment. So what intervenes between our death and that final judgment? The return of Christ. And the resurrection of God's people unto glory and of God's enemies unto shame and judgment. But that is the simplicity of the scheme of salvation. The simplicity of the plan. So Christ, verse 28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time. Notice that? To those who eagerly wait for Him. This marks the true church of Christ, of the Lamb. We know what we are waiting for. We are awaiting people. We are a persevering people. We are a people that look beyond and transcend and overcome this world. Not because we came this world in riches and fame and power and influence. No, because we overcome it because this world does not swallow us up in its desires and on its natural course unto death and condemnation. We are awaiting for Him. He will appear a second time apart from sin. By the way, when Jesus Christ, another clue, when Jesus Christ appears a second time, ain't no one getting saved. When Jesus Christ appears in glory, He will not appear with regard to put away sin and to save. What's he going to do? He's going to rule and judge. And we, his saints, with him. And we, his saints, with him. So there is no dying and rising and a second chance and some sort of a glorified existence next to those that are not yet glorified. And some people getting saved after that in some type of earthly Waiting and giving a chance to others. The chance is now. The opportunity for salvation and the preaching of the gospel is now. Before the Lord returns. The kingdom, we are to be calling out people. The kingdom has come. It has arrived. The end of the ages is here. The promises of salvation for mankind have been realized for all. For everyone that thirsts to come and to receive salvation. The door is wide open now. The Lamb of God is there as your offering, as your sacrifice. The Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That covers, that forgives, that accepts, that receives, that welcomes sinners. If anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast them out. But in the same way that that is so certain and so true and so foundational, in the same way that the second coming of Christ will be one of utter judgment and ruin and shame and confusion for many, it's also certain and sure. In the same way that it will be for glory and honor and exaltation and immortality, for God's people. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Meaning for the ultimate culmination of our hope. The ultimate culmination of our hope. What is it? Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We hear the following in Romans chapter 8. We are awaiting people. We are a persevering people. In Romans chapter 8, we hear, beginning in verse 18, 
Notice what is the attitude of God's people now as we wait, as we persevere, as we wait for this salvation in the sense of there is salvation past, present, and future. What does that mean? Past, when Jesus Christ accomplished redemption, right? And at some point, then that spirit, the spirit of Christ, which is also sent of Christ and the Father, regenerates us. It comes to our present. We are regenerated. And then we are saying we're being sanctified. That is salvation present. By the way, salvation, sozo, it's the word in the Greek, and it simply means healing. So we are healed by the wounds of Christ. In what sense? We're reconciled with God. We're healed spiritually. When the guilt of sin is removed. When we are justified in Christ. Salvation. The salvation that comes from the cross. Accomplished in Christ. The spirit applies it individually to people. And we are healed. What does that mean? There's many here that have made errors. Thinking oh we're healed. No longer getting sick. Oh everything is going to. No that's not what that means. That still awaits another aspect of our salvation. The problem with our Pentecostal charismatic um, cousins, if you will, is that they are they want to bring the culmination of the kingdom now. The kingdom now. Yeah, the kingdom is here now in promises fulfilled and in, in salvation spiritually and the gifts of the Spirit and the providential dealings of God with men for the gathering of the elect now. But salvation is not here yet. Where every suffering and sorrow and illness and disease and trouble and pain of humankind is removed. Not even from God's people. That still awaits. What does it await? Again, salvation present. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and justifies us. Through faith. By hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing Hearing by the word of God, we are justified, meaning the guilt is removed. It's a legal forensic declaration. That's very important. This is some, this is another doctrine that is missing. It's the missing jewel that the modern evangelical church needs to find the doctrine of justification. That when we believe in Christ, God declares over us a not guilty verdict. He declares over us actually a righteous verdict. He says, I reckon you to be righteous. Not because you are, but because you are in my son now. And if he is righteous, I call you righteous. I absolve you. I declare you not guilty. You're free to go. You are mine. We're adopted. These are some of the other corollary doctrines that flow from from justification, obviously. But salvation present, we're justified. The guilt is removed. We're no longer guilty before God. We have been reconciled. Salvation present is that from that justification, from that not guilty verdict, from that identity of being saints and righteous and children, begins to ensue a real personal process of sanctification, of change or transformation, in which we are being delivered from the power of sin. In other words, we begin to bear, we begin what, what was impossible before, that we would be able to please God and bear fruit and begin to obey Him and please Him and have fellowship with Him, now begins to gradually happen. That is salvation present. It's called the process of sanctification. The Spirit is sanctifying us personally, really, in our lives. Salvation, But salvation present, even though the guilt has been removed, even though the power of sin has been broken, it does not mean that the presence of sin has been removed or of the flesh. Sin and the flesh is still with us. Trapped in this present evil age, and in this present dimension of the inheritance that we still have in our members from the first Adam. 
the removal of that is the final aspect of our salvation. It's the culmination of our redemption. And when that is removed, then all things will be set right. Every aspiration and longing of our humanity in the new humanity of Christ finds, finds then perfection and culmination. And that's what we are looking forward to. And we shall have more to say on that and explaining what some of these things entail. But notice, notice then going back to the attitude that we have now the implication of this waiting, of this understanding, of this hope of the Christian, looking forward to Christ's return bodily, visible, visibly for us. Notice verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, notice that, the sufferings of this present time. Why are there sufferings in this present time? Because there is an overlap of the kingdom of God that has arrived and the evil age that is still with us. There is an overlap of the Spirit of God that indwells us and the new creation that we are in union with Christ and the flesh and the members that are still acting according to the flesh and its desires even in ourselves. That is why there's still sufferings. And there will still be sufferings. That is why Jesus says, in the world you will have sufferings. Obviously because they're also external enemies. The flesh is an internal enemy. And the flesh is not just body. They're important. Sarks in the Greek is not just body. It's the whole dimension of the legacy that we have inherited. In mind, in spirit, in soul. Environment affected. From the fall, from the rebellion of our forefathers, Adam and Eve. They are external enemies. External enemies that are energized and empowered by Satan the dragon. And those external enemies will have helpers. Physical, visible, active helpers in society and in the world. They have been active. They have been at work. And they will more and more ascend and rise before the very coming of, of Christ um, with regard to culmination of all things. So we want to lay some of those things out. But I consider that in the midst of that context, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Notice future tense shall be revealed in us. It's very important. If the glory that you want is just for now, well, you haven't heard the true message of Christ. If you are looking to Christ as a means and somehow as a genie in the bottle to solve your earthly problems, you have not come to full or a thorough understanding of the Christian faith and the promise of God in our lives. Our faith sustains us now during a time of suffering and travail. And the people of God will be sustained and will persevere and will wait to the end because they are ultimately sustained by the vision of that glory, by the comprehension of that glory, by the looking forward of that hope because they have come to realize that truly their human aspirations truly when they are revealed in the person, in the glory of Christ, in the plan of redemption of the Father, and in the enlightening of the mind of the Spirit, that they are truly the aspirations that history and humankind needs. And we see them. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that by the enlightening of the Spirit, the Christian faith becomes the only reasonable option to all other religions and philosophies. I'm not an apologetic, even though we ought to be, I'm mainly a preacher of the gospel. But one of the things that we come to realize at an existential level 
as we live the Christian life is that God addresses truly the existential cry and needs of our souls. And that truth, by the Spirit of God, becomes self-authenticating. In other words, we we could say at a level, what do you believe in God and in Christ? And we could say, well, you know, because the Bible tells me so, because the Word of God, I'm not so fine. But there's, some, there's another reason, powerful reason why we do. And that is because the truth has made itself inescapable, irresistible, and present in our lives. And that is Christ Jesus. <laughs> and the redemption of the Father in Him. So that reveals glory to us. We shall have more to say on that. We want to fill some of the the pictures and the panorama of that glory in the next few Sundays. But see, notice that is what grounds us to persevere in suffering. That is what, what grounds believers in the midst of great trials and tribulations as we have suffered throughout the history of humanity. Notice what he goes on to say, and we close. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice the earnest expectation, not of the muses in the Olympus. huh? Not of some mystical, abstracted world of, you know, who knows somewhere. No, no, no. The earnest expectation of creation. Creation groans for its continuity in redeemed culmination. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's great that everything good, every good gift of creation will continue on to renewed creation. I know <laughs> this is a little funny note, but it just popped into my head. I'm going to share it with except marriage. And the jury's out on that. <laughs> Didn't get it? Okay, well. <laughs> mm. But I think marriage is going to be superseded by what? By friendship. By friendship, right? By friendship. Because at the end of the day, at the cornerstone and foundation of every good marriage is what? A true and good friendship. It's been my delight in counseling to tell folks, there you're looking at your best friends. The quest of your married life ought to be to become best friends. Best confidant, best ally, best buddy, your spouse. I'll be leery when folks say, oh, I want to get some space. This is that. <laughs> right? No, no, as you are, and I'm going in a rabbit hole, okay? But I'm going to come out of it real quick. But, <clears throat> yeah, because we need to go out too. <laughs> but it is indeed the case of, of, of marriage. Now we are gaining in that intimacy of friendship, and that will last unto eternity. So that glory, and that's the earnest expectation of creation and continuity. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Everything now in creation, under the sun, apart from God, there is vanity at the end of every road. The, roll is, the Rolling Stones got it right. They knew. There is no satisfaction. Everybody that is honest in life at some point, it may take some booze and some drugs to be that honest. <laughs> There's no satisfaction. I can't find no satisfaction. True, because there is none apart from Christ. 
None. Every venture, every endeavor, everything that we do in this life under the sun is marked by a sense of incompletion. Notice we die and we wish we... There hasn't been a funeral that I go to that. That there's always that sense, I wish I could have done more. And my comeback is, of course. Because nobody can do everything in this life. It is, this age is an unfinished age. It got broken up by the fall. And you will never finish in this age. You will never be finished. You will never finish, and you will never be finished as an edification project. Your career won't get you finished. Your marriage won't get you finished. Your children won't get you finished. Politics won't get you finished. Nothing in this life will get you finished. Only Christ and His return will. And those that have come to grasp that, they can wait. They can suffer for the day of being finished, of culmination. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with bird pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Christ's bodily return is the redemption of our own bodies in the continuity of creation and history renewed, recreated for the honor and glory of God and the pleasure and delight of a new cosmos and His people. And God's people said, Amen and Amen. The peace of God be with your family. God bless you. I look forward to seeing you again.